and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Derek Miller, John L. Loeb Associate Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. We will discuss his new book, Copyright and the Value of Performance, 1770 to 1911, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the podcast, Derek. Thank you so much, Brian. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Oh, man, the pleasure's all mine. I, I really thought your book was fantastic. Of course, I'm a total copyright history nerd, but there was so much fascinating historical detail, but also like really sophisticated kind of meta theoretical framing of sort of the intellectual history of the concept of copyright in performance that I just found incredibly rich and useful. So thanks for writing it. Well, thank you. It was, it's a real pleasure being in dialogue with so many great lawyers and legal historians, as well as uh, people from my own discipline of theater and performance studies. That's um, one of the great things, joys of working on this project is working with so many different people across uh, the academic world and also in the professional world. Yeah. Well, for me, this is a great example of you know what interdisciplinary scholarship ought to look like. And I, and I thought maybe we could kind of launch into the discussion with a kind of a little bit of kind of framing of the perspective that you're bringing to to this question. So you're talking about the kind of development of the concept of ownership of performance. And you talk specifically in the title and in the book extensively as well about the quote unquote value of performance. And, and I, I really like the, I really like that framing because the word value takes on so many different meanings depending on the period in which you're using it. So I was wondering if you could just spend a minute talking about sort of the role of value in, in your kind of theoretical framing of this question. Absolutely. Well, that, that's a great place to begin because the core question of the book is really about how and what happens when copyright comes in and says performance has a particular value as property now and that it can now be bought and sold on the marketplace just like any other commodity. And that happens at a particular moment in the 19th century as and I focus in the book on the United Kingdom and the United States as the UK and the US pass their performance rights statutes in uh, 1833 and 1856 respectively. And then as courts work through the definitions of performance uh, through various litigation over the next few decades. And the fundamentally the question that drives the book is how the copyright law brings together discourses of aesthetics and economics. And that when we think about aesthetic value, we can think both about questions of what's good and bad art, but also about what is um, formally a part of a, a different type of genre. What counts as drama? What counts as music? What is the valuable part of music? Well, if you're talking to a, a flute player, they might say one thing. And if you're talking to a copyright lawyer, they might say another. And that difference is the place where I got fascinated with this material. And I can tell you even, so I should say, and your listeners will discover this very quickly if they don't uh, know, I'm not a lawyer. I have never been to law school. But I did take a copyright law class when I was doing my PhD with Paul Goldstein at Stanford, who's ah. a great copyright scholar, of course, and was, was very generous to let me sit in this room. And there was a particular moment in the course that where I knew, aha, I'm on the right track. This is a good question. And it was he was talking giving a hypothetical about uh, photography. And he said Ansel Adams painting I've seen photographs are published with lots of detail about the camera and the lenses and the time of day and where he was when he took his landscape photographs. Could someone go and use the same equipment and take the same photograph? 
Uh, and there was lots of back and forth about this. But to me, the answer was obvious because I've been reading Susan Sontag and Roland Barthes in my theater and performance classes. And they say the essence of photography is time. Photography is valuable because it captures a fleeting instant that disappears. It's showing us this moment that can never be again. And that was really a different idea about what made the photograph valuable than the set of technical questions about reproduction that we were having in the classroom. And it was that gap between the discourse of photography, about which I still know relatively little, but had been reading just at that moment, and the copyright discourse about reproduction that said to me, there's a project here to think about how these discourses of value intertwine with each other and separate from each other. And it's a story then about the relationship between art and economics, but told through the law. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that actually is fantastic because one of the things that really struck me about your book was how it underscored the way in which legal scholars thinking about different categories of of works of authorship protected by copyright really, I think, don't often do a good job of kind of struggling with and understanding the subject matter itself and the kind of ontology of the categories of works that you're talking about. And what part of, I mean, a big part or, you know, one of many things that I felt like you did really effectively in, in your book was talk about how the law not only kind of applies those categories, but actually kind of almost unconsciously constitutes them as well in a way that we don't, we can't see once we've done it. Um, and I just thought that was was fascinating. And I was wondering if if you could kind of walk us through that history a little bit, right? Because you, one of the things I liked was that you you pointed out kind of early on in the book that in the, the beginning of the period that you're talking about, there really wasn't a concept of a performance as a work in the modern sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the book spans this period in the late 18th century when the first major litigation about a theatrical performance under copyright laws appears in the UK to the eve of the First World War, at which point both the US and UK revise wholesale their existing copyright statutes, which are all over the books, and do a major omnibus revision that then also includes an idea of reproduction as performance in the form of sound recording technologies. And so that really is capturing this period when they invent performance rights law and they invent this whole concept of drama and music under performance rights law uh, in the late, mostly the late 19th century. So the general outline of what I trace is might be thought of as sort of two periods, excuse me, three periods, really. The first is a period before there are any performance rights statutes, which again goes up to 1833 in the United Kingdom and 1856 in the United States. And essentially, the copyright system in my reading, and this is not mine alone, you can also find it in work by uh, the, legal, uh, the literary historian Mark Rose, um, is very much rooted in a sense of property as tied to propriety. That is, mm. the, the author's ownership of the work is very much tied to the social system. It is something that simply belongs to the author. The importance of alien, alienability and a, a, an ideal of a commodity that can be traded through the marketplace is less central than what is properly mine. Uh, that period then starts to shift once these laws are passed and courts start saying, well, wait a second, this is now a publicly tradable thing. And then they have this phase where they have to figure out 
what is the thing that you own? And mm. so I don't talk about this much in detail in the book, but you get simple cases. For example, is a pantomime a dramatic work? It doesn't have any dialogue. Can mm -hmm. something that's done only in action be dramatic? Uh, one of my favorite cases is called uh, Daily Against Palmer. It's in the United States in 1868, and it involves a, a scene from a play that is shared between mm -hmm. two plays. And the scene is now a cliche, but you could plausibly claim you'd invented it in 1868. And the scene is this. A person is tied to a railroad track, and there's a train rushing onto the stage. And another person is trapped in a room. And at the last minute, they escape from the room and help the person off the track, and then the train rushes by. This mm -hmm. Sort of the cliche of melodrama, right? Snidely yeah. whiplash, twirling his mustache. Well, this, according to the plaintiffs, first appears in a play by Augustine Daly. It's called Under the Gaslight in New York City in the 1860s. And an Irish playwright named Dion Busico puts the same scene, the same situation, in a play of his called After Dark. And Daly sues and says, you can't do that. That's my scene. The problem is none of the characters is the same. None of the dialogue is the same. And indeed, in the daily play, it's a man tied to the tracks and a woman who does the rescuing. Whereas in the Busico play, they're both men. And uh -huh. so they're really very different situations in a lot of ways, except the action of the scene is the same. And the court looked at this and said, could you have ownership in this thing? Is this dramatic, this action of the scene by itself? And they decided, yes, it was. But there's a moment there where the answer might have been no, which seems impossible to us now. But the point is that they did the work. The courts had to do the work and think through the arguments about what the essence of drama is. And they came out with deciding that the essence of drama is embodied human action, at least so I argue and take away from this long uh, and very detailed opinion. Uh, but this, is, this thing goes on through the rest of the period. They uh, go on through the rest of the century then uh, trying to figure out this same question about other things, about music. They ask these questions in the 1830s and 40s. What's the value of a part of music? Well, it's melody. But what about harmony? Oh, yeah, harmonies are also important, but not as important as melody. What's the relationship between melody and between music and drama? Gilbert and Sullivan are involved in a huge bunch of, huge bunch of lawsuits we can talk about a little later. Um, mm. they, they're really trying to think through what it is that makes drama drama and music music and makes them valuable. And once they've decided on what this commodity is that property, the copyright law protects, what that property is in drama, dramatic performance or a musical performance, then you start seeing what becomes a purely economic view of copyright law. Then the question becomes solely about economic value. If someone could plausibly claim to make money from something, then it has value. And we're not worried about defining the form. We're no longer interested in questions of form. Now, that's a disingenuous argument because the formal work already took place and you're just taking mm -hmm. it on board in every opinion that comes afterwards. But the yeah. denial that there are formal or, as you said, ontological, and that's a word I always get nervous using because I'm trying to you know, explain my work in the simplest way possible. But yes, they are ontological questions about art. But once you, once you deny you're making ontological questions, it doesn't mean you're not, you don't have ontological assumptions. It just yeah. means that you're accepting as for granted what has been given to you. And these things yeah, you still can't... come up. There's a Chicago uh, uh, appeals decision about, um, I think it was a public work of art with a bunch of flowers that had been planted. Mm. And, and the artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a number of years ago. And the artist said, you know, 
you can't redo the plaza and ruin my art because I, I, under the, the Visual Artist Rights Act. And the court said, no, no, the flowers change and die. So it's not fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Yeah. And yeah, that's no, the a Chapman Kelly case. Yeah. So that's a really specific view of what, you know, visual art is and how visual art has to work that I don't think actually aligns really well with a lot of art that people make today. But mm-hmm. But they're saying they're making these judgments more explicitly in a case like that. But these are always undergirding any dis- copyright law decision is, a que- is an idea about what the ontology of the work is. And you can see that work much more uh, overtly in the moment when the law is invented, because courts are literally seeing these cases for the first time and saying, OK, you have a right to a drama. Uh, what's drama? And then they, you'll find in the judge's notes in some of these things, definitions from Webster's Dictionary. And the case filings, the, the, the lawyers are sending in definitions and saying, well, you know, Lord Bacon says, and they're just doing their best to try to show the judge why their definition of the work is, is the right one. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the way that this kind of reification of the ontology of a work seems to happen at different historical moments for different categories of works. So like in the early period that you're talking about in your book, it seems like there is a kind of kind of quasi commodity based concept or language around literary works and yet not around dramatic works yet or the performance of uh, a work. So it's like you could conceptualize a drama as something printed, but ownership of the right to perform it uh, seemed to be conceptualized in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's got to do with this strangeness about, and scholars such as Ronan Deasley have done an awesome job of laying out this, this weirdness around whether or not they really understood in the 18th century a copyright in the same way that we do now. And I'm pretty convinced by the idea that no, they didn't, that they, they still had very confused ideas of what people actually owned and the relationship between material objects and even printer's plates versus the text versus the format of a given thing. They really mm. were unclear about that. And they were still thinking through that problem, even in the 18th century. Nonetheless, by the end of the 18th century and early 19th century, the practice and the law had solidified enough that people were more comfortable with behaving as though there was a clear uh, commodity right, a clear reified artifact that was the text rather than necessarily a particular book or edition. But for performance, no, that doesn't happen. And one of the reasons it's actually delayed has then to do with a separate set of law, which are the laws controlling the right to perform theatrical works in England at all. So uh, in England, up until 1842, Technically, only two theaters during the main season and then a third theater in the summer had the right to perform legitimate drama, Uh, Covent Garden and Drury Lane. They were called the patent theaters, and they had a privilege from the king to perform legitimate theater. Now, there was a whole uh, illegitimate theater system that grew up in London in the late 18th and early 19th century competing with this legitimate theater system. But nonetheless, technically, the right to perform came from the king. So you see this whole system of propriety very, very literally in place that my right is properly mine because the king gave it to me, not because I wrote a text and have a copyright. Um, so then once they invent the dramatic literary uh, the, the performance right with the Dramatic Literary Property Act in 1833, you actually don't see much litigating around it until after 1842, 
when the patent theaters are dissolved, essentially, and anyone can produce legitimate drama, and then you start seeing the competition and the lawsuits pop up. Yeah, and you suggested in the book, this is kind of a digression, but you suggested that there was kind of a political valence to that as well, which was really unexpected and fascinating. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on political history of Britain, so I wouldn't go too far down this rabbit hole. And I'm definitely echoing work by the fantastic scholar uh, Tracy Davis, the wonderful theater historian, who, who makes the same sort of point about this set of laws that are passed in the 1830s and 40s affecting the theater, but that there's a huge political reform going on in Britain at the time. Uh, you've got various movements that are returning parliamentary elections to the people, trying to get rid of rotten boroughs and make sure that more people have the franchise, and you've got various tariffs being undone, and all of that movement and reform is also tied up with the monarch changing, the end of George uh, George IV's reign, and so these sort of shifts are definitely related. The removal of the king of the theater from the king's authority and its opening to the public sphere is a movement towards the public in the same way that the expansions of the franchise that'll continue to happen later in the century are also the same kind of movement. Yeah, yeah. Well, in that same period, you also discussed an almost kind of entrepreneurial-like proprietary claim that was made essentially by sort of like actor celebrities at the time and sort of like trying to generate the sort of ownership or kind of quasi ownership norms that they wanted in the absence of a kind of ontologically well-defined um, work uh, that they could own. I love that story. I was wondering if you could just like share that with people. Cause I feel like that's maybe not as well known. Yeah, so the, as- I'll try to do the shortest version of this, but there's an actor named Charles Macklin who was extremely litigious and even killed another actor in a duel and had a famous lawsuit about clacks at Covent Garden. And he was, he was, seems like a real fun guy, but he was one of the most famous actors of his day. And he wrote an afterpiece called love a la mode that uh, ends up being the center of the first major copyright lawsuit involving theater in 1770. Uh, The suit itself, though, was entirely about the printing of that piece. And Macklin was desperate to make sure there were no printed copies out there because he was the only guy who was doing the play. In other words, if you wanted to see Love a la Mode, you had to hire Charles Macklin to come play one of the parts in it. And he would show up and hand out the script and then everyone could do Love a la Mode and you'd pay him and he'd get the author's fees, whatever they might have been, and you'd be paying him to act in the show. So it was a way to keep his career alive and keep him on the public stage. And so he's asserting a personal right, but also asserting his his right to this part, to this material. They're very closely aligned together. And so you can think of projecting something forward now to something like the right of publicity that's been built up, particularly in the state of California, mm-hmm. what is it, the 1960s and 70s. Um, is sort of a modern version of trying to think through those same questions. What is it that actors can and performers can lay claim to as their own? And Macklin here is using the copyright system for written works as part of the means to try to assert that control and ownership. And I'll just say, um, Jane Wessel, who's a wonderful uh, uh, scholar of the 18th century theater, has done a lot more work on this idea of actors being tied to specific roles and specific what were called lines of business types of parts and the way that they use this emerging proprietary system to try to assert these claims. One of the things that's really clear when you start to dig into this history, particularly in these uncertain periods, is how much people rely on informal systems to create structures of enforcement and expectations um, and rely on each other to observe those systems. Uh, Anthea Crowd, a wonderful dance scholar at the University of uh, California, I think at Riverside, has written a fabulous book 
called choreographing copyright about the different ways in which people tried to assert control over choreography, particularly before there was any copyright protection for choreography in the 1976 Act in the United States. And there were all kinds of informal mechanisms and expectations about what was yours and what wasn't and how you signaled, uh, you know, hey, that's mine. You shouldn't be doing that step, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and an- another thing you mentioned, <laughs> not to cherry pick and whatnot, but another thing you mentioned in the book that I thought was really interesting was the sort of received wisdom that in a lot of ways, like, um, reification and kind of commercial, commercialization of particular categories of works of authorship tends to kind of follow technological shifts. And in a lot of ways, it seemed like your story suggested kind of the opposite, almost like the conceptual shifts anticipate the technological changes and that people were like imagining certain ways of fixing or kind of concretizing the works that they were creating before it was actually possible to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really that, hmm, how do I, how would I put it? That, Technological innovations, it's not as clear what effect they're going to have on the world as one thinks looking back in retrospect. And so I learned mm. this really from an absolutely brilliant book called The Audible Past by a scholar, a communication scholar at McGill named Jonathan Stern. And the book is about the invention of sound reproduction technologies, um, uh, recording, uh, radio and telephone uh, are all come up more or less around the same period. And it's not clear at that moment what each of the three is for and what kind of a thing they should be legally and what role they should play in the law. Uh, And one good example of the sort of lack of clarity of these technologies is we think of telephone as being for point to point communication, right? You you call someone else's phone number and you speak to them one-on-one in the late 19th century in Paris, there was a, what was called the théâtrophone. You could call in from a booth and listen to what was happening on the stage at a theater in Paris that night. So telephone was essentially behaving like radio. So with new technologies, there's a huge amount of indeterminacy. And the technology, so then the danger then is looking back at a legal system that is, seems to buttress that whatever form the technology ends up taking and thinking, aha, the technology became X and therefore the legal system became Y. But when you actually look at the timeline, I think, and this is particularly true with sound reproduction technologies, it's a lot messier than that, which is not to say that the technology doesn't play a huge role in the way that the law comes out and the way people think about ontologies of art and value, but that if the law goes another way at a certain point in time, maybe the technologies go a different direction. And this is all clearest with phonography and clearest, uh, perhaps the best, to be more specific, even after sound reproduction technologies are invented and start becoming widely available, the music industry is still so heavily invested in sheet music that they really want the courts to decide that music is writing. They're really uninterested in putting any ownership in having any ownership over performance. There's no musical performance right in the United States until 1897, which is mm. wildly late. It's late even by sound reproduction standards. And meanwhile, in the UK in the 1880s, as Isabella Alexander's amazing research in this period has shown, there's tremendous efforts by the music publishers to make it harder to prosecute people for musical performance rights violations and to increase fines mm. for sheet music copying. 
because that's their business. That's their money. And so they're busy running down this old business model as hard as they can and pushing courts to support their old business model. And meanwhile, this new industry is coming up behind them. And so the law does shift towards the new industry, but it's not a moment where everyone said, aha, the technology can do X and therefore the law must do Y. It's a far more uncertain and, and, and confusing conversation that everyone's having at the time. And people are trying to think about what is a, how should we think of a musical recording? Is it something that's written down in simply a medium we can't read, like a needle on a phonograph? Or is it something about performance that is simply captured here in this thing? And they don't know. And British and American courts come down on opposite sides initially. It's a very strange moment. And there's some fascinating writing about this by a number of people, including Lisa Gittleman at NYU uh, and others. It's, it's a truly crazy moment in both the history of technology and the legal history. Yeah, I mean, it really drove home for me how important it is for historians to remember that, you know, in retrospect, things often look incredibly teleological when the actual experience of them in the historical moment doesn't really seem like people experience it that way at all. Yeah, and I think it's compounded by the the need for, in legal studies, doctrinal research, right? Uh, that's really trying mm. to explain what exactly the law says now, you end up with a sort of a teleological journey. But when you go back to these cases, and, and as I uh, was able to do with this work, um, to go back through the case files and see the arguments mm. that the opposing attorneys are making, you can see how wide open the field is and see these other cases that fall by the wayside after a while, but that might sort of be law for a bit of time. There's a great example of this um, for about, I think it's about a 15 year period. Um, and Jessica Littman at the University of Michigan has the best article on this. If for about a 15 year mm. period, American law seems to hold that uh, you, uh, if you attend a play and memorize what you hear at the play, you have the right to go stage your own production of the play. This is called the memory doctrine. And it's based on a really strange and obtuse, I think, reading of how theater, the theater industry works. But it's not such a crazy reading of the relationship between theater and performance and memory. It just doesn't really make any sense financially. <laughs> it, it guts the performance <laughs> rights law. And so theaters end up doing things like putting up signs saying, you can't memorize a performance and walk away. And also, very few people were actually memorizing. They were sending in stenographers. But uh, so, right. so it was really, it was bad law, but it was kind of the law for about 15 years. And it's unclear how much this was really going on uh, until courts finally said, no, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, never mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's almost like the theatrical equivalent of card counting or yeah. something, you know. Yeah, yeah, really <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 that actually really gets it that distinction that you make in like different kinds of value between sort of economic value and social value, and the way in which that these time based media like performance writ large, not just theatrical performance, but other kinds of performance kind of have this, create this kind of eruption, as it were, in in sort of like the the 
reification of the work into something that can be commoditized and bought and sold because of course every performance is unique so it's like there's something unstable as it were about the performance right in the first place yeah that's, that's absolutely right i mean the performance right is essentially a right for a potential that exists in some usually written material right it's the right to realize is a performance, what is in the script. Um, and, and so th- there's something always not quite yet about the performance, right? <laughs> and then the way that performance is something that's always happening in the now and then disappearing, it really doesn't feel like it should fit with a system that's about, you know, turning a- an abstraction into something you can put on a little piece of paper and walk around and say, I own this and you don't. But that's precisely what the law has done. And it meant something to performance when the law said this, uh, just as it changed, mm. it helped them change the copyright law. I mean, this idea of copyright as being the metaphysics of the law, I think you really see that happen not in the 18th century when they're still just sort of puzzled about everything, but in the 19th century when they're creating these commodities out of these abstractions. And a part of that is also related to a turn in economic thinking towards uh, mar- marginal value right, away from uh, theories of value that are tied to labor and tied to individuals and toward this idea of supply and demand as being the fundamental question. And this ties to uh, the podcast of yours that I was listening to a few weeks ago with Andrew Gilden, where he's talking about the sort of overriding economism of copyright uh, litigation today in the courts. Um, And you can see that Mm. really taking force in the 19th century. At the same time, what happens too is they abstract the work from the author. Um, some of these cases I looked at have the authors involved in the litigation, but of course, most of them don't. Most of the time, the authors are far away. It's producers, it's other kinds of owners or publishers who are involved um, because you're really dealing with this abstract thing that the industry is carrying around and giving to different middlemen rather than an individual trying to claim a, a right for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And you closed your book with an example that I thought was like a such a perfect illustration of this tension, which was the Andrew Lloyd Webber rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. Yes. And for, as a copyright, as a copyright scholar, it really drove home to me the sort of tension between the sort of ontology of a musical work and the ontology of a dramatic work. Because in the context of musical works, we've sort of solved a lot of that tension with like mechanical licenses that effectively say, well, the musical work is this kind of abstraction and you can create your own version so long as you effectively, you know, throw a tip in the direction of the person who's the copyright owner of the underlying musical work. But no similar kind of mechanical license exists for dramatic works. And so there's like this conundrum. And I was wondering if you could just like say something about like how that like just illuminated the internal contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the, the sort of the simplest lessons of this book is, isn't it weird that there's no compulsory license for drama, but there is for music um, because they're kind of the same rights. Um, and, and, and it's an accident of the system and the way the industry was structured and the different types of power that various people had when these laws were written, that the system has ended up the way it is. Um so, uh, right, so the Jesus Christ Superstar case, um, there were actually a bunch of Jesus Christ Superstar lawsuits. So Jesus Christ Superstar, for your listeners who are not as obsessed with it as I might be, um, or perhaps you, Brian, uh, 
originally, originally released as a concept album. So it's released as a record album. And then it's staged on Broadway and is not that well received. People have kind of mixed feelings about it. They're a little confused about the religious message. But a bunch of groups take it up um, trying to tour around the country and do it as a concert. Because under the licensing system that have, uh, applies to live music, if you're not performing a dramatic, using a musical work in a dramatic performance, you can f fall under what's usually the blanket license for a venue. So Madison Square Garden just pays ASCAP and BMI a certain amount of money every year and also tells them what music they play in the venue during the year. And uh, that just allows them to play anything that's in the ASCAP or BMI catalog. But once the work's dramatic, then you don't have that blanket license rule. Instead, you have to pay for what are called the grand rights. You have to go and specifically ask the licensor, can I perform this work? And so these groups would go around the country and they'd perform like most of the songs from Jesus Christ Superstar, but they'd cut a couple. And they'd say, well, it wasn't a dramatic performance. We didn't have costumes. There wasn't really any lighting. And the courts would look at this and say, well, is this dramatic? Or is this just a musical performance? And so I look through these reviews and I look at what various uh, musical theater scholars had to say, had to say about the piece, such as Elizabeth Woolman and Jessica Sternfeld. Um, and, and it's a really strange thing because people are divided about what kind of work Jesus Christ Superstar is. They're not sure how to read this, this musical thing that they've been given. How dramatic is it really? And indeed, Tim Rice and Angela Weber are saying, well, you know, it wasn't a typical musical. We don't have moments where Jesus comes in and Judas says, oh, hey, Jesus, how are you? What's going on today? Um, instead, it's a series of sung scenes. Um, but it's not that dramatic, really. And my favorite example of a lawsuit is a group of priests who are doing Jesus Christ Superstar. They do, I think, most of it, although they change a little bit of it because they think Jesus is a little too sexy. And uh, then they tack on a whole resurrection at the end of the show. There's no resurrection in Jesus Christ Superstar, but the, these priests added it. And they said, look, we believe Jesus is Lord, and the important story of Jesus' death is the resurrection, and so we threw it on at the end. And the court said, no, you have no right to do that. You can't just use Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's show to do that. And you don't have a First Amendment right that overrides their right to this material. But it's kind of an intriguing argument in some ways, right? That it really mm. does mm. fundamentally alter Jesus Christ Superstar if you tack on the resurrection at the end. Um, and this Seriously. is the 1970s that this lawsuit happens. And I think the same, so you see the same stuff going on today. Fair use cases are a great place for it. You saw it in the litigation over David Ajme's 3C, which was a, a parody of 3's company. Fortunately, I think the courts got understood that, that it was parodic and, and let that, that, that fly. Mm. But, uh, Courts are still confused about a lot of stuff. And this happens even in areas where the law is settled. When you take it to juries, I think the jury instructions can end up being really bad and confusing. I think the blurred lines decision was a transparently awful. Um, I mean, the, the, the way the evidence was tied, tried to explain that this was copying of Marvin Gaye's work, it doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah. the way the law has gotten yeah. parsed out, you end up with this very weird view of what is valuable in a musical work or a dramatic work that I don't think necessarily accords with even what current working artists and audiences think is valuable to them. Yeah, yeah. And no, I couldn't help but think that, you know, Marvin Gaye must be rolling in his grave to think that people are equating his work to <laughs> <laughs> But But Derek, you know, this has been a fantastic interview. Um, for listeners, people should know that like we've 
barely scratched the surface of this fantastic book. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Like, is, is there something that I really should have asked you about that I totally failed to? Like, is there so- anything in particular you think uh, listeners ought to, ought to really leave this conversation? Well, I'll, I'll just say that um, there are a lot, I discuss a lot more cases in the book that we, we don't have time to go into in detail, but uh, some of the fun ones, I think there are intersections with questions of censorship and, and even a little bit in a very tangential way with slavery, there are questions, mm. uh, as I said, the Gilbert and Sullivan litigation is absolutely fascinating. Um, and Gilbert and Sullivan are extremely involved, and particularly their manager, Richard Doyley Cart, and uh, his eventual wife, Helen Lenoir, who's running their legal scheme in the United States. They're really explicit about the music theory and the artistic theory they're trying to promote in U.S. courts in the period. And I think that's the best example I really have of someone thinking really closely through the question of uh, what is drama, what is music, um, themselves, and trying to bring it to the courts. And so there's discussion of dance, there's discussion of um, uh, uh, amateurs in here. Amateurs are very bad bad about obeying copyright law, and they were very bad about it in the 19th century, too. Uh, and so there's a lot more material that I cover than we've been able to discuss today, but I, uh, that's just because I, I wrote too long a book, and I'm really grateful to uh, have talked about some of it here with you today, Brian. And I'm grateful to Brent Salter for putting us in touch. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic book, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. So thank you so much, Derek. Thank you, Brian. most important and interesting institutions on the university campus is the Gino Theater. Very few of the students know the history of the theater, so I'm going to tell you a few of the facts now. The first building was an abandoned Negro church, which was bought by Mr. Sachs, who was then head of the art department of the university. The building was badly in need of paint, so everyone was asked to, build a, to bring a bucket of paint, no one designating what color. When the people arrived with their buckets, the paint was of every different color. So the first paint job that the building received as a theater was of many different hues. The curtain, like the outside of the early theater, is of many different colors, and it was made at the Eastern State Hospital by the women there from pieces of material given to the Gingo Theater. This theater was named the Romany. The building soon fell apart, but the lumber was salvaged and added to that of a number of uh, Negro shacks to form the present structure. After the university had bought the um, theater, Mr. Frank Fowler came to direct it in 1929. He named the theater the Guignol, which is the French word for marionette. After the decision of the New York producers not to bring their place to the uh, provinces, the uh, Lexington, once known as the best one-night stand in the South, became barren of theater entertainment. The Guignol has capably filled this gap. The Guignol presents five major and four studio productions every year. Anyone in Lexington may try out for the major productions, but only students of the university are using the studio productions, which are plays that are written by student playwrights. Some of the courses that will be offered next year by the, this, part, this department of the university are first, dramatic production, which will be taught by Mr. Geiger, second, uh, oral interpretation, and third, expressive reading, which will be taught by Mr. Fithian, fourth, directing, fifth, acting, and sixth, playwriting, which will be taught by Mr. Fowler. 
The plays that are set for next year are first, You Can't Take It With You, second, Ball Pony, third, Are You Are, fourth, Our Town, and fifth, Reunion in Vienna. If any of you have never seen a Gina production, I suggest that you come over and see one. And if you do, I feel sure that you will want to see all of them, and possibly to act in them yourselves. <laughs>